Welcome to the Men Among Demons podcast. In a disoriented world, this is the podcast that asks what would happen if we truly put Christ at the center of our thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Opperwall. And I'm your host, Dr. Greg Weeb. Hi, Greg. Hey, man. This has been a kind of a weighty uh, start to the semester. I don't know how you've been feeling. Uh, And I think we've talked about this a little bit already. Um, But it's been a kind of weighty semester, weighty beginning to the semester for me. And I think that has to do with um, it has to do with, let's say something like ideology for ideological reasons. There are things that are happening in the community around me. Um, and I want to like, I'd like to pick your brain a bit, or I'd like to just talk with you a bit about what it is, what it, what it means well, literally what it looks like to live, to live in, in, um, circumstances over which you have no control. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. Um, and I've been toying with the word ideology recently because I, I've, I've never really understood what it means. Um, but listening to, listening to Peterson's maps of meaning lately, he said something like he had a little, um, he had a little phrase. Ideology is something like um, a mythos, a a mythology that is incomplete, that it only tells half the story that it conceals that it, that it, that it gives, you know, it gives you sort of a mythological framework for action in the world but that conceals like half the story that conceals a considerable part of what, um, of what the truth is, how, how humans and their societies actually work. He's giving, he's probably giving more, more credit to ideology than I would, but, (laughs) but yeah, but go, go on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I take it as like, you know, in in terms of thinking about how to contextualize, like, so for example, um, Yesterday, we voted through uh, our statement on equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? Um, and we listened, we wound up listening to a fellow named uh, Willie James Jennings, who's kind of a big deal. He works at Yale, he used to work at Duke, uh, has written some books that uh, people have found really, really helpful about on the origins of uh on the origins of race in, in uh, North American colonialism and that kind of thing. Um, the thing, the thing that got me about this one that connects to ideology, let's see if we can, let's see if we can spin this out so I can actually ask you what I want to ask you. Um, he sort of gave this account of, of the problem of academics in North America as being a problem of whiteness and uh and wants instead to uh wants instead to for, for it to be something about like uh something more like belonging okay but in whiteness is included mastery self possession um so both, like so you can see how you can see how those might be a problem like right there's a, there's a significant issue of of rampant individualism 
uh, right in North. That's one. We even talked last time about you know consumerism, right? That's that's part of it, and part of part of the posture that he's that he's rightly you know criticizing, attacking, is the idea of self possession or possession as mastery, mastering um, mastering a domain. Um, but he included in in within that uh, as a critical element. You know, mastery over one's passions, mastery over one's emotions. Oh, oh I see. And, and he was he was kind of critiquing that. That's right. Oh, Th- that's right. And it's not just mastery, but you get the strong sense because you know I've got an Augustinian background. I've spent a lot of time with City of God. One of the key key aspects of City of God is Augustine's. Um, a vehement criticism of the lust for mastery, right? The lust for possession, the lust for domination. So obviously that's going to be a problem, right? And so Jennings points to uh, the plantation, right? The plantation as an instance of, of, you know, kind of an icon of whiteness as, as mastery and exactly that kind of lust for domination. But there is this sense in which all, all mastery, all concept of the master winds up being implicated and needing rejection, right? So even, you know, I have to, it, it's, it's this sense of, um, even you got to wonder, it's like, how can you, how can you get to the, be the, the, the dean of, uh, religious studies at Duke? And how can you get to be in a senior position, senior faculty position at Yale? Without a certain amount of self mastery, <laughs> without a certain amount of you know assertiveness that is being that is being um, um, you know criticized as as whiteness, and so like I, so I'm thinking about this like in this it's like this you know the criticism is often coming from the right the right point, but it's like it's only telling half the story. Um. I mean, I don't know what you think about that. I see. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting. I'm not getting to to the question yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's. I mean, we could go down the road road of talking about the the mastery stuff for sure, um, which is interesting. It really, it really piques my interest because I, I, um, yeah. I mean, I naturally agree with you, and I think the the the, the Christian tradition absolutely does as well. That the notion of this kind of complete mastery. Over the world, the physical world, over others in it. I mean, to the point of uh, you know owning other people is is deeply problematic in all kinds of ways. But the mastery of self is something mostly to be celebrated. Uh, I think actually what what kind of popped into my head when you were talking a little bit about Saint Augustine there is within within the Christian tradition. The, the kinds of notions of mastery that, that this fellow is, is describing over others are, are not examples of really mastery at all. They're, they're examples of slavery to, to passions. Uh, real, real mastery is, is freedom, and real freedom is freedom in God, in Christ. Um, and that means uh, a, a moral life and an ethical life and a, and a life free from the kinds of passions that draw people in our world towards trying to possess and control that which doesn't belong to them, which is what 
so there's two, there's two mastery. It sounds to me like mastery is being used in two different ways in this discourse. One is people trying to take control over things that don't belong to them, like other human beings. Other human beings do not belong to me or you or any of us. You know, even even our even our children, for example, over whom we have a lot of responsibility and for whom we do have to make decisions, especially when they're very small. Um, even they don't belong to us. They they belong to God. Period. And and we serve in a kind of caretaking role. But certainly, other adult humans, you know, don't don't belong to me. And no, no matter what the law says about whether I've bought and sold them, which uh, which you know we don't we don't do it openly anymore. Although it happens underground all the time nowadays. Um, like is is wrong. But that, that to me sounds, that, that's a passion. Like that's a, a twisted vision of myself. That's something that's got to come out of a pride, a very deep pride, um, which is, which is brokenness. And that, that's not mastery at all. Yeah, no, that's right. So, and I and I think that gets that gets to this sense of of ideology. You know, you know, toying with the idea of describing this as ideology in the sense of ideology as being a as being an obfuscation of half the story, right? So, there really are two two very real senses, at least two real senses of mastery here, right? So, and what and what winds up getting it occluded is exactly that that God and, you know, in the gospels, God himself, uh, you know, appears as master in Christ's parables and so forth. Right. Like there is, you know, there is going to need to be some kind of, um, there needs to be some kind of, of, of master of, of masterhood of mastery. Um, but it has to be true. Right. Um, and, but to, but to, but to obscure that, you know, obscures something, um, really, really critical. I mean, the issue, the issue I'm confronted with, the issue I'm confronted with is that, um, you know, you try to, you try to tease something, you try to tease something like this out. Like it's hard enough for you and I to have this conversation and to tee, you know, to take the time and tease out the, um, the meanings and tease out like what's really going on here. Uh, and it's hard enough to do that. You and I who know each other very well, uh, and trust each other and trust each other's judgments, um, and, and trust each other enough to give each other the time. Like you trust me enough to give me the time to, stumble over my words like I'm, you know, like I'm doing right now and to think out loud. Um, but when you're in like a meeting at work, like that's, you don't have the time. You don't have, you don't have, even if that's relatively, you know, collegial and whatnot, you don't have the same level of trust. And, and it's, and a discourse like this winds up being very much taking, you know, giving shape to, to what you do as an institution, right? So I find myself in this, in this scenario where it's like, you see this conversation going in a direction and you're like, I just, I mean, aren't there things we're forgetting as in this, 
And uh, but there's nothing I can there's nothing I can do, right? I can make I can make a few comments and and maybe make myself look like an idiot. Um, but, but generally, uh, you know, you watch you watch this you watch this go, and it's and and so the question increasingly for me is, um, it's like, what do you do? What do you do? Well, it's that's it's a huge question. Yeah, I mean, I think I, to to start to approach it, like I think you're you're onto something with respect to ideology. Like another another thing that occurs to me when dealing with ideology is that it often um, manifests when when we grab a hold of something to which there is some kind of truth. It's not just an absolute, it's usually not just an absolute radical, radical falsehood, usually. But, but then we, we're, it's an overgeneralization very often to say that, you know, this is so something like, or, or, or the words you used earlier, you know, whiteness, that's, that's um, a popular thing to attack right now. And taken at face value, it's, well, it's frankly pretty outrageous. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite outrageous to wrap up into the color of my skin you know, all this kind of stuff that you were just describing and much, much, much more. I mean, it, it, it's <laughs> on, on my worst days, it makes me really quite angry. And it's not because the stuff that's being criticized is fine. A lot of it is very problematic. I mean, I am not in favor of chattel slavery and plantation life. And I mean, I, like th- that also is an outrage. And I'm, I'm glad that we've moved past that. And we have a lot of work left to do. To, to try to work past all of the, the the awful legacy of that and many, many, many other things. But to then turn around and say, well, see, what the real problem here is, is, the, is white people. Well, this is <laughs> like, no, I'm sorry. That just is, it's not an acceptable way of looking at that. What you've done is you've overgeneralized something. And now people, now it's very, very popular to talk about, you know, whiteness, like you just said. Or something like mastery to say, you know, mastery is this thing that's whatever, a feature of white culture or or a problem or a bad thing. Well, it certainly can be. It can be if it manifests itself in me thinking that I own other humans or thinking I can do whatever to the planet Earth I feel like or um, or millions of other things you could think of. But it, it also has a certain place. So like it just it seems to me that these things always need to have a certain kind of fuzzy edge and a certain level of of humility as we deal with them to 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 hold ourselves back a bit from overgeneralizing uh when we make um when we make a discovery that often has some truth to it uh and then we you know we just kind of go hog wild and we rush we rush forward and we don't we don't have that restraint so we, it occurs to me with respect to something like an institution like your university that it's it's very it's hard to imagine doing that honestly um how would a university or any any institutional entity any group of people engage in something like trying to work through i don't know the legacy of you know racism in north america with circumspection and with care to not overgeneralize and um I mean, particularly, and maybe that's not a great example because that conversation, I actually could, I could kind of imagine that conversation going better and, and going decently well. But um, I mean, I think certain things like, you know, public health policy right now with respect to COVID, um, where on one hand, you know, action kind of does need to be taken. On the other hand, there's a, a painful um, 
failure to apprehend the degree to which we don't know certain things. There's a, a painful lack of intellectual humility about a lot of things uh, with COVID and with everything else. And when you're an institution and you have to make certain types of decisions and you have to make certain types of policies, that's, that's a huge, gigantic problem because you can't just sit and meditate on this all the time. Uh, and then, and then just have another beer like you and I do. But so what is an institution supposed to do? Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So it's not, I mean, so we might very well feel at, at this point in time, like, you know, Oh, this, things are uniquely crazy or, or whatever, uh, you know, ideology is taking a special hold that it, that it wasn't before or, or whatever, but it's kind of like, it's kind of, it kind of belongs to the nature of institutions in the world that they're always having to act without, without having the time to think through things thoroughly. Yeah, I think I think that's often the case. Maybe not a hundred percent of the time, but it, it certainly often is. Yeah. So right. So I'm so I'm finding that what I, like what I'm finding is that increasingly, um, the way you know this my institution that I have that I happen to be working at. Uh, working for um, is is it's charting its path through the world. I find it increasingly I'm increasingly alienated within it, right? And it's and uh, and there's probably there's probably like that's probably just what life is like <laughs> to be for a human. You mean right to for for a human yeah. especially to be an orth but to be an orthodox yeah. christian you're just going to wind up finding that you're not at home in the world it is kind of what he promised us isn't it yes and so so the, so the question is like okay well then now what and and like it's the thought you know especially in when the when these these conversations or these the moments of decision feel more intense. There's this, I find myself thinking, thinking about the, about the monks thinking about like monastic approaches to being in the world. And you think about like, okay, well then, you know, this whole, this whole ship, you know, is, <laughs> uh, is rudderless, uh, sailing off into, uh, to, you know, to, you know, wherever the winds and storms blow it. That's how it feels, right? So what am I going to do, but try to anchor myself in something like, trying to anchor myself in Christ through, uh, you know, through the Jesus prayer or something like this. But the reason I wanted to uh, talk to you to get, to try to get you talking about it. I mean, you've done a lot of thinking about, um, uh, right, you wrote you wrote a book on Cassian and trying to think about how what what it means to take monastic wisdom and live it in the world, but to but to try to tap into some of your, you know, how you've practiced through this thinking, how you how you've thought about like what it is to to take on some of these habits, to adopt some of these habits. Um, but that's really what I wanted to ask you. Oh, I, I, I shouldn't have met 
Well, I mean, I, I, so I spoke to you recently, this is the other day, or, or maybe I texted you. I don't know what it was, but I was reflecting on the importance of enjoying being a Christian instead of, at least some of the time, instead of always worrying about the world, which I think, which I think was something that came, it came out of a space of uh, hitting a certain level of detachment for me. A kind of, I, I, I don't know if you're like me in this respect or if any listeners would be like me, but I feel like there's a certain, um, a kind of a curve, I don't know, sort of like a bell curve of my emotions when things are going wrong around me or, or with, say my university is doing things that I'm finding outrageous or the, or the government is or whatever. You know, first of all, he hit a certain kind of high peak of, of anger or rage or whatever. And then if it just, if they just keep going, like I kind of fall off a cliff and all of a sudden I'm very Zen. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not beyond, well, the old phrase beyond angry, right? Like I actually, I experience that sometimes. I, I don't know about you, but like where I really just like now I just feel relaxed. And I think it, it was in such a moment that it, that it occurred to me, you know, the <laughs> Christian life is awfully nice and maybe I should enjoy it more. Uh, because when we're detached from the world, and if we really, really put our faith in Christ, which is what the monastics are trying to do, uh, and if we focus on on that, then we don't really have to worry all that much about all these things. Um, they they will unfold as as they unfold, and the reality is that we can't. Nothing can can touch us. Um, and there's an absolutely a peace and a joy to that that I think is worth worth enjoying. But I was also reflecting on it in, in a bo- an embodied way. I was reflecting on a lot of the problems that by being a Christian, I just I just don't have right. Um, so thinking of this conversation is going in a lot of directions at this point, but but uh, maybe we'll kind of tie it all together somehow in the end. But I was thinking, for example, about. Um, you know, all these, these things, again, university campuses, all these things that we hear all the time about consent and, uh, you know, the sexual relationships that are happening on university campuses. And it's, it just sounds like a, an awfully complicated and horrible way to live to me, to be going, to going around having sex with strangers and then having to think about, you know, whether everyone was okay with this part of it and that part of it. And, and then tomorrow, and then now you might end up in court and now you're, you're all like, good Lord, it sounds awful for everybody. Um, and it's, it, I don't have to deal with that. You know, I, I don't have to stick my nose into thinking about what courts should do and what, what the rules and the laws should be. Um, it doesn't affect me directly because I'm married and monogamous and my wife and I know each other very well. So, you know, we can work out the dance of, uh, you know, desire pretty well. And, uh, you know, we're not, I'm not, we're not always on the same page, but that doesn't create a crisis. It's not like we're going to end right. up in court because, you know, I wasn't in the right. mood and she was, um, it'll be fine, you know? <laughs> and, um, I don't know. Just sitting like there's a space to just say, wow, you know, this isn't so bad. This isn't so bad. We've been told by the society around us that we Christians are, you know, all 
bound up by our rules and our laws and and we're so uh, you know i don't know we're prudish on sexuality or we're we're whatever we're, we're stunted and and what an awful way to live or, or look at monks like as you brought up the monks and the nuns you know what oh look at that like look at how they appear in the movies like these dry like these awful stultified people who need Whoopi goldberg to come in and show them how to have a little fun and now they're happy you know um, <laughs> this is this is the picture of what religiosity is about in, in kind of the popular consciousness. But if you take an example like that, you know, sexual consent <laughs> or in just sex, you know, married people statistically have much more sex and they have more satisfying sex. And this if you if you know anything about sex is not that shocking. Because what you well you live together and you've worked through this whole consent business and you're not dating anymore and you know each other well and of course you're having more and more <laughs> satisfying sex that is not surprising uh, versus living a promiscuous life out there trying to suss this all out with a new new person every however many days or weeks which is just wild sauce so we we're looked at as you know all stultified and and we need. Uh, Whippy Goldberg. Um, but the reality is, <laughs> it, take a step back and ask yourself, well, which of these lanes do I want to be in? Um, which of these lanes is actually free? It's interesting because, of course, like you, so you, you wind up talking about the marital union. But of course, the marital union is a biblical image for God and Israel, for Christ and his church. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. And so there is, you know, it does resonate also at this level. And, you know, unlike you, uh, I like I work in a Christian university, a university that is, uh, you know, self-identifies as Christian. Um, so there is something about, and I know, fr I know from experience, from a lot of, from a lot of conversations from, and from coming from the Mennonite world, from coming from the Protestant world, that of, of how much how much reinventing the wheel there is which is a bit like this this question of of you know being in university and trying to and, tr and trying to figure out your sex life it's like you're, you're there's a constant constant questioning and uncertainty that is that is that is resolved by the context of the marital union and then so too like i see I'm very grateful for the Orthodox Church so that I don't have to ask myself, continually ask myself how to, um, you know, uh, how to live religiously in the way that I see happening among my Mennonite colleagues who don't, like, who don't know, you know, who are faced with questions uh, that, you know, that we don't have to ask, Right. Like what's, you know, if you think just the same way that if you think that you're a non-liturgical church, then every Sunday there's a question of, well, how is the, how is the, how, what, you know, what are we going to do? How's the liturgy going to be set up? And especially as, you know, you find out that the basic pattern is, you know, sing some, sing some songs and then hear a, uh, uh, hear a sermon. Uh, and then on the other, out of the other side of your mouth, wind up saying, uh, being very opposed to ritualism and, and, and that kind of thing. Even though you do the same, you know, you say the same prayers every Sunday and do the same worship service every Sunday. Um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a kind of inner tension, inner conflict, um, uh, 
that were that were saved from in the Orthodox Church. And I think so. That was that was my point in bringing all this up to kind of lace it back towards where where we started. I think the search for detachment from these things is is how monks and nuns respond fundament, fundamentally. The monastic movement gets started historically during uh, a time that's very markedly similar to to our own uh, in you know the the third into the fourth centuries. A period of time in in which the Eastern Roman Empire, where this starts to kind of get going, at least in the Christian world, is very wealthy, very prosperous. Um, a mix of paganism and Christianity um, that reminds me a lot of what we have now <laughs> in North America. Of course, we don't people don't think of themselves as polytheistic pagans anymore, but they absolutely are. Uh, and then, but there's still a lot of Christians and a lot of sincere ones too, um, just like there were then. And Christianity, we're on the kind of ebb, and it was on the the um, incline, the increase in terms of its power and its influence on society. But I think we're at a bit of a, a bit of a nexus point where it reminds me a lot. You know, we're, we're headed down, and they were headed up, but we're at that that cross point where it's about a, a similar amount of cultural power and cachet to them. That was all brand new to us. It's like we're losing something. But um, but but however you slice it, you have a society that looks a lot a lot like ours and therefore pr- provides presents a very serious problem for Christianity. You know, really early on Christians are just, just straightforwardly marginalized. So I think the kinds of problems you're talking about, they are, are easily resolved if you're just an absolutely marginalized group of people who no one's going to give the time of day to, and everyone thinks it's just a bunch of wackos. Well, okay. So you don't have a seat at the table at all. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter. The, uh, the issue both in the third, fourth century when monasticism gets started and in our time is that, well, we do still kind of have a seat at the table at some tables, less and less each with each passing day, it seems in a place like Canada, but still we are, we also live in a democracy in which we are expected to participate in the political process and do things like cast votes, which makes it difficult. So as much as we feel like we're increasingly marginalized, we Christians like you, you and me are not entirely marginal. We like we are part of the society, and so that creates a problem. And it was similar in the early monastic movement, where you have Christianity growing in power, growing in popularity, becoming increasingly connected to the to the Roman state, and wielding more and more and more authority. And what do you do in that situation? Because the world has a way in those types of scenarios of getting its tentacles around you a little more. And I think what the early monks and nuns are doing is, is just literally running out into the desert to try to seek a detachment from that. Uh, and then now, as then most people don't go out into the desert now, as then some people do monasticism is on the rise is my understanding uh, in the Orthodox church from a, a fairly low ebb in the last couple of centuries in, ter- in terms of the size of some of these communities and the long-term health of some of these communities. Um, and I th- it doesn't surprise me, you know, more and more people getting fed up and saying, you know what, maybe it just isn't worth battling through all of this stuff every day <laughs> from, from the moment I wake up to, to the moment I go to bed. Um, and maybe I'll just check out and go to a place where I can focus on prayer you know, work with my hands as much as I'm able, 
um, cook meals for some of my brothers and just focus on what really, really matters and, and not trouble myself about all this. So what do the rest of us do then is the question. Well, I think we have to emulate that move internally and psychologically, that move of detachment um, to a large degree. And we then have to, <laughs> it doesn't solve, it doesn't make the problem easy or something. Um, but like, I think that has to be part of the mix. The reason I brought up all that in enjoyment and we went on a little jag about, you know, Christians living a better sex life, which I'm quite convinced we do. Those of us who are married and, and have one um, is because like, I find it helpful nowadays to keep in mind that like, this isn't all bad. This isn't just like dour self-denial and holding ourselves back and not having any fun at all. It's actually really kind of an appealing life to just be a little less worried uh, about what's going on and, and remember what the stakes are given the reality of Christ, the stakes of all this, you know, it's a tempest in a teapot to a large degree. So that cultivating that detachment, but it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't absolutely solve the problem. Still, what do you do when you're in the room? Insofar as you're going to be in that room, because you're a layperson, you work at a job. I, I work at, well, a job and a half, if not more. And so I'm in the room too sometimes, or I'm in, a, in the voting booth and I have to make a choice. What exactly do we do? Where do we draw the line where we say, just throw up our hands and walk away and say, all right, you know, you do whatever you want, you know, to hell with you. And when do you stop and say, I don't know, maybe you can help that conversation you were describing be a little more subtle, a little less ideological. I don't know. I think those decisions are always made in the moment. It's not easy, but having some level of detachment has to be a key starting place, I think. Well, and that's, yeah. And that, and that's just it. Like we have, we've, you know, you and I have talked about a bit about this before and that one of the differences, a key difference between your situation and mine is that, um, no one at you Waterloo gives a wit what you think, what you That's think, right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not at you Waterloo. Yeah. At Trinity. I mean, I teach part-time still at Trinity college, which is a Christian institution. And I do think people there th- care what I think. Um, so that kind of when I'm wearing that hat, it's maybe a little more similar to what what you're talking about. But my at, at my University of Waterloo job, but where I'm a staffer for for the listeners, and not a, not a professor or anything, just a staffer. Uh, yeah, no, they don't care at all in any way, shape, or form. It could nothing could matter less than my <laughs> my viewpoint on on anything, Greg. <laughs> which is and that's a different like for me it's a small you know Canadian Mennonite University is a small university and and I I work for you know right underneath the the vice president academic academic dean like yeah yeah so, so you've got a place you got a seat yeah, yeah of course and so the so what you know the that immediate question and I mean you already answered it to a certain extent that like how much you how much you participated 
kind of winds up being an in the moment kind of decision. But that's, but that's, that's a question that's like, you know, you see, like I say, you see this, this ship moving of its own accord and it's, and I have some voice, but it's not particularly powerful. And I could, you know, I can scream, oh, this is insane. When are we going to talk about the, the real underlying issues here? Um, but that won't actually, I mean, in these conversations that I have in mind, that won't make a difference. It will wind up alienating me to a certain extent. Um, and, and it's not, you know, how, to what extent should I, you know, the question is, is basically, you know, give me some advice. What, you know, at what point do I say, you want advice uh, from I, me, mean that, I mean that rhetorically, uh, like right, right. rhetorically, but, <laughs> but it's like, but that's, but that's what it is. It's like, okay, geez, you know, should I just, you know, should my, my colleague across the hall is always one of the other few, you know, few conservative leaning or whatever, right leaning, um, folks on campus, uh, his, you know, quote unquote, zoom went out right at the moment that we were all supposed to go into breakout groups, uh, talking, oh, about, sure, talking, sure, about, uh, yes. talking about the thing, right? Funny how that can happen, <laughs> isn't it? Well, I think, which is not necessarily a bad move. I mean, I think, so I think well, one no. of the really key things here, and this is where the detachment it, where where we can start, I think, to some degree with attachment is whatever we do, not focusing on the outcome, because you can, that you can't control. Like you're not going to get CMU to be whatever you <laughs> you think it should be. Nor, nor would that necessarily even be a good thing. I mean, you also are human with your own limitations, uh, and, and so am I. So like making us gods of our <laughs> university Waterloo turning to me and saying, you make every decision now would not be good for anyone. I mean, I, I wouldn't be good at that role either. I think there's some space in between you know, complete marginalization and like being King that is maybe best. I don't know, but what, wherever we land though, you, you just can't gauge it on results. And I think if we focus on that, then if we don't focus on results, then we can start to focus more on like moments, uh, spaces where maybe you can have a chance to be heard. Um, or maybe you can have a chance to just get your point of view just into the mix. And from there, it's out of your hands, you know, um, like I, I find myself tempted when when I'm getting really frustrated is because I'm focusing on like trying to make the right thing happen, and the more confident I am that it's the right thing, you know, the more frustrated I'm going to get if I can't make it happen. But even if I'm absolutely correct about what the right thing is, I, it doesn't help for me to focus on making it happen because that's pretty much never entirely in my control, you know, unless it's something to do with just me absolutely as an individual, but certainly when it comes to like my university, my country, whatever, my neighborhood, my city, um, just my, even my family with my children and my wife, like family decisions are not entirely under my control either. So making the right thing happen, I have to let go of that and think more about just process. Um, and that's like, I think that's what the monastic life is about witnessing to is a detachment from how it all goes. And what you do instead is constantly pray for the world constantly. And that's a, that's a kind of focusing on, on the output. We, we, the monks and the nuns go and they just dump prayer into this crazy world, buckets and buckets of prayer. Um, and not because it's going to fix something or make the election go the right way. 
Of course it isn't. <laughs> elections have been going the wrong way as long as there have been elections and monks, monks nuns have been praying about it the whole while. Um, but just, just to focus on what we put out, what we put into the world. And when it's something beautiful like prayer, then, then that's good. I mean, we can sleep well at night and even if the world goes to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And certainly the most, um, you know, the most fruitful times in my own life has not, have exactly not been <laughs> the committee meetings at which I have, I have an opportunity to say something, but the times, the times in and around and afterward where, um, you know, with your, you're with a, just a couple of colleagues and the, and the, uh, the intensity is dialed back or the um, stakes are dialed back and you do have a little more chance to speak, to speak freely and dialogically. Um, and, uh, uh, and look for those moments. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, really started to think about the spiritual life in terms of, you know, wakefulness, watchfulness, looking for the moments where you can connect with someone else, right? Or the moments where, where like, someone, someone else is on the verge of something and you have, and you, uh, and you know, you've, God has given you the grace to be present for that moment. And maybe participate in if if you know you let if if the Holy Spirit wills it, um, you know to say the to say the right choice thing. Well, to join us for the rest of the conversation, please find us on Patreon.com/slash Men Among Demons. Here's a short clip from what the second half of this episode will contain. You know, it's interesting. You write it's not. It's also not about a, about a you do you. And I'll do, I'll do me. No, no, no. I don't think so. In the sense that oh, that also is a reductiveness. That's right. Because we are, we are truly social and we do live in terms of historical patterns. That's right. We can't help but replicate patterns of those who have gone before us. Well, that might be a good moment to stop this uh, portion of the episode. Yeah, I think that's okay. This has been the Men Among Demons podcast. Your support makes this podcast possible. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash menamongdemons for exclusive content and to join the conversation. Thank you for listening. Take it easy, Greg. See you, man. See you, man.